And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Felton. Since protests started in May over the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, many have called for the defunding of the police. Many have also called for the complete abolition of the police, the prison industrial complex, and the carceral state at large. There's been debates, explainer videos, infographics, articles, op-eds, you name it, to educate people on what exactly abolition is, how we get there, and more importantly, what will the world look like on the other side of it. So I've been looking into and researching abolition to learn more myself, mainly attending virtual events and teachings about it. And I will say that the biggest thing I've realized is that the dismantling of certain systems isn't the most demanding piece of abolition, but rather the reimagining and rebuilding of a society and world with better, more life-giving systems in its place. I remember always thinking to myself when I first started studying sociology that these social institutions are literally made up. Like we think about the most basic institutions, such as the family, religion, education, the economy, Those are literally created by human beings to organize, define, and frame our life patterns in society. Those with power, namely white landowning men, created these dominant institutions in a way that related to their world and their life, while those of marginalized groups are designated as subcultures or erased altogether. I say this because I feel like with abolition or really any conversation about policy, reform, anything, As people move as though the premise of those conversations is that these institutions and ways of organizing society are inherent to human life. I think that's because these systems and institutions have been around for so long, but also because of the prevalence of white supremacy and colonialism. For example, the police, which is a lot more recent in history than we like to think about, is something that people really, really struggle to imagine a world without. This clip from NPR explains it pretty succinctly. And so when you think about the fact that many of these institutions that people are working to abolish are fairly recent in a historical context, it begs the question of if we're truly capable of building something completely different. In the introduction of Our Prisons Obsolete, Angela Davis also poses the same question. The prison is considered an inevitable and permanent feature of our social lives. Most people are quite surprised to hear that the prison abolition movement also has a long history, one that dates back to the historical appearance of the prison as the main form of punishment. In fact, the most natural reaction is to assume that prison activists, even those who consciously refer to themselves as anti-prison activists, are simply trying to ameliorate prison conditions or perhaps to reform the prison in more fundamental ways. In most circles, prison abolition is simply unthinkable and implausible. Prison abolitionists are dismissed as utopians and idealists whose ideas are at best unrealistic and impracticable, and at worst, mystifying and foolish. This is a measure of how difficult it is to envision a social order that does not rely on the threat of sequestering people in dreadful places designed to separate them from their communities and families. The prison is considered so natural that it is extremely hard to imagine life without it. And I'll be sure to drop these resources in the show notes so you can do your own research if you haven't already. But especially this week after Jacob Blake was shot by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, this conversation about abolition is coming up again as far as the national dialogue goes. And I have a few thoughts that I want to share before we get into this week's interview. Latidra Woodman, Jacob Blake's sister, said at a press conference, I don't want your pity, I want change. I think that if we, as a society, were truly tired of police violence, we would have changed it by now. And by we, I'm not talking about black people because I feel like we've passed tired. 
I mean, if people in power, those in office, those with wealth, white people, those with privilege and power in this country were truly tired of police violence against black people, we would have changed it by now. And I think this for a few reasons. One, y'all still don't value black lives or see us as human beings, but we knew that. So more importantly, two, society still sees police as legitimate because those controlling the narrative as well as decision-making power are white and wealthy, aka those whose interests police are in place to protect. Three, society still sees police as legitimate because we've been told that they're here to protect and serve us. So we discuss reform to hold some faith that they'll change. Therefore, we postpone cultivating our imaginations and the communal networks of care to know how to define and create safety for ourselves. Four, and this kind of goes off of three, society still sees police as legitimate because if and when we do reach a world on the other side of abolition, even before then really, we have to face all of the social inequalities and ills that we leave for the police to deal with. So to summarize, from what I've learned so far, it's an issue of those those with privilege and power being complicit and willfully ignorant, and very often weaponizing the prevalence of police violence against black and brown folks. It's an issue of a lack of imagination and collectivism, and it's an issue of people putting too much trust and responsibility in the hands of police in the first place. And there are people who are a lot more well-versed on the topic of abolition. One name that comes to mind is um, Miriam Kaba, who can teach you a whole lot more than I than I can communicate in this podcast. So I'll be sure to link them again in the show notes because I'm going to humble myself and say that this conversation is often very layered and very nuanced and very challenging at times. And in some parts of it, I simply don't have the range. Like this is definitely a journey where you have to read and engage in good faith and be open to challenging and internalizing information from outside sources that will challenge the most fundamental beliefs you have about the world, specifically with how society treats people and why our first response to everything is to punish and discard and cast people out instead of working to help them and eliminate the conditions that got them to where they are in the first place. It's not simply just a policy point that one either supports or doesn't. For example, with Breonna Taylor and the fact that her case is not moved in about 167 days, but who's counting, um, for those saying that they want abolition, the call to action then can't be, by definition cannot be, to call for the arrest of the cops who murdered her. And that sounds wild as hell at first, but when you really think about it, that would then have to involve more cops and the judicial system and the prison system, assuming that all of those pieces are working together in the favor of justice, which we can already see that it isn't. So for me, at this point, the only call is for the abolition of the system that allowed this to happen in the first place, and the system that refuses to provide any type of justice or hold these officers to account even after people have been demanding they do so for months. And that's hard. It shows that our knee-jerk reaction when things like this happen is to arrest the cops. But then again, like, that's one case. We look at all these individual cases. So if we call for officers to get arrested, that's a handful of officers. And this has happened in so many communities, so many times this summer alone. And of course, if you go back, you think about Michael Brown, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Corinne Gaines, and countless others. And I also think of Ahmaud Arbery and Trayvon Martin, who weren't killed by police officers, but by people like that white boy who killed two protesters in Kenosha, who are operating under the guise of the policing of black people that is inherent to and emboldened by the social construction of whiteness. And so again, even after we reach a world where police and prisons don't exist, in order to avoid recreating those systems with a new name and face, we also have to eradicate the concept of policing, or what some people call the cop in our heads. And that leads me to say that the way abolition has made the most sense for me to learn and begin to do that work is to go inwards, to unlearn my understanding of the world as it relates to crime, safety, policing, and justice. It affects my relationship with myself, my personal relationships, all before it affects how I interact with my greater community. 
And I think about how, you know, for example, children are treated in their homes from the conversation about people spanking or otherwise disciplining their kids, and especially in schools where police are often present, but also by other authority figures like teachers. And I believe that the great schools in particular are a space where children are conditioned to be policed from small things like, you know, having to ask to go to the bathroom, needing a hall pass, you know, dress code, suspensions, etc., that are applied to black and brown students more harshly than they are white students. And so when you think about all those things, especially like metal detectors in lower income and inner city schools, it just detail it, it shows how detailed we have to be with how we, we reimagine our world. It's not just a matter of, oh, get rid of police, oh, get rid of prisons, and then the work is over. Like policing, the concept of policing, incarcerality impacts literally every facet of life. And so it all comes down to the fact that this world, specifically the United States, has conditioned non-black people to believe that black people are in need of policing in the first place. And I will say that this is an Africans only live, so I don't really like to end my content in non-black folks. So to black people, I will say that this is another thing that I want us to reflect on and try to unlearn as well. Like I know, you know, you can internalize your own oppression, so we internalize that as well. A lot of us are expected or conditioned to expect run-ins with the police at some point in our lives. We expect to be watched in police when we're in stores, when we're in school, when we're going for a jog in our neighborhoods, literally in every facet of life. And so I think that um, I think of black parents who have to have the talk with their children. Like I want black kids to be able to just exist and enjoy their childhood. I want us, I want black people to get to a place where we can more easily imagine, not only imagine, but experience a world where that isn't the case. Instead of moving like being policed is an unavoidable fact of life and not just a condition that we live under at this point in time. As somebody who works in communications, we have to make these conversations more accessible, make the roles in this movement more accessible so that people can see themselves not just in the conversations and in the fight and the journey to get there, but also beyond that, so that we can all ultimately feel like we have the power to self-determine in our own lives, as well as the outcomes in our community at large once we reach the other side of abolition. So with that said, I want to introduce our guest for this episode. I spoke with Chris Thought Poet Brown, who was a photographer and writer from the Chatham and Burnside area in Chicago, and a member of the Chicago chapter BYP 100, who's doing a lot of great work to mobilize and educate folks in this space. Thought Poet came up in the Young Chicago Authors and New Media Spaces with artists like Chance the Rapper, No Name, Saba, and George Michael, all under the mentorship of Brother Mike. His photos show melancholy, and above all, his love for the black and brown people of Chicago and beyond. He's had the opportunity to work with individuals and institutions such as Raekwon from the Wu-Tang Clan, Dr. Cornell West, Chicago Tribune, Essence Magazine, The Fader, Estelle, Dreezy, and many more powerful individuals. His main agenda he lives by is to screw the logical and continue to dream. Hi, my name is Christopher, Thought Boy Brown. So the Thought Boy comes from me being a photographer. I come from a background of music journalism, photography, art, I guess. As far as getting into organizing, it kind of just build it together while being a part of the Chicago music scene. Um, so like when Chance the Rapper uh, was like going to come up, like we were right around him. Um, and that's when BYP also got started. And so it just kind of made sense, meshing the art and organizing together. And then how long have you been a member of BYP and what, uh, what motivated you to join? Once the unfortunate passing on the Kwame McDonald happened, um, and like what kind of happened between that time of like the video dropping and uh, Van Dyke being indicted and stuff like that. That was around the time that we were doing like sit-ins at City Hall and stuff like that. And um, the night that the Laquan McDonald video finally was released, I remember we were just in the streets. And um, yeah, I was right there with them on Michigan State fighting off police on bikes. 
And I think maybe a week or two later, I joined BYP 100, and that was like, I think going on five years ago now. Mm-hmm. So. And then you mentioned um, like the the combination of your art and activism. So can you talk a little bit about how like you know your background as an artist has impacted your approach to activism, or maybe vice versa? Well, as an artist, and I guess it's it's important to say this because of how I'm looking at my art now. When I was coming up, my grandma was like, because she's an artist, uh, so she's like a doll maker, you know, soft sculpture. She's had her work featured at the Dusseldorf Museum. You know, I was always around art when I was coming up. So she always kept me in some type of art book. So like, you know, photos of the Harlem Renaissance or like, you know, photos of Gordon Parks. And you know, I remember as I got older, I kind of just stuck to his work just because of, you know, what he did for Time Magazine and Muhammad Ali. And uh, I just remember wanting to be in those spaces that he was capturing and, you know, picturing what black people, you know, looked, felt and just, like sounded like in that like era. And so I guess like as time progressed going into my art, when I started organizing, I really wanted to capture that same feeling just because I feel like, especially with organizing and, and how Chicago has been perceived in the past just couple of days, like folks truly feel like we're like rebels to society and we just, you know, I, can I curse or no? <laughs> Honestly, yeah, um, you got it, yeah. <laughs> We have like, like you know, society's expecting us to like fuck shit up, and like you know, we're just looting for no reason, and folks can't understand that. As black and brown people in this city, just like anywhere else, we're fighting to be heard, and you know, we're fighting to get the mayor to abolish police. As simple as that, and I feel like the imagery that 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 is in this very moment being created by myself and just other in this, you know, city. Um, it's something that people are going to talk about 10 years from now, which is weird saying because I just want to get through this shit. But, um, yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned um, you guys are currently organizing around abolishing the police. And I think that uh, abolition is one thing that's becoming, like, you know, more a part of, like, national dialogue. So what, um, I guess, has, has been your, you know, opinion or your kind of, like, reception of, you know, it becoming more, um, I guess, just more adopted by, like, a larger audience? Like, what misconceptions have you seen? Like, what, um, I guess, how are people receiving it, I guess, more broadly? I think the best way to... to, to... I guess express that is kind of like if you were a fan of the Boondocks. So like, you know, you have Kiwi, Riley, and Granddad, and coincidentally, all three of them represent like the different type of black person that exists right now when it comes to even understanding what abolish means. So like you have, you know, Huey who was like, you know, uh, quote unquote pro black or like woke or like educated or, you know, uh, potentially lower mid-class trying to get to upper class or something um and then you have riley who is like quote unquote the slightly uneducated uh i'm in the hood i'm about the streets type of person right and then you have the nigga that's on the fence which is granddad so it's like one minute i'm pro-black and i'm for the people and then the next minute i'm probably calling the police because there's somebody like on my property like that type of black person right so to answer your question, there are people that really believe that abolishing the police is the move. And then you have people that could really give a shit about the police. Although the 
police, you know, makes it harder to just exist as a black person, whether you're educated, non-educated, whatever. And then you have niggas that are on the fence. It's like, fuck the police, but also I own property. You know what I'm saying? So it's like trying to get us as a people on the same accord, it can be difficult. But I think with, I I, want to say since the beginning um, of George Floyd's uh, unfortunate passing, um, I feel like we all can agree that no matter who we are as black people and brown people, the police do not protect us. And I feel like slowly but surely we're going in that direction. I think again, it's just constantly trying to show people that with the Chicago Police Department alone has spent $2 billion since the beginning of 2020 on policing. And most people have no idea, most black people have no idea that that exists. You know what I'm saying? But they definitely understand, especially since this quarantine, that school, like CPS, not existing is a problem. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like a lot of our, I feel like a lot of our wants as black people are coming more together, if that makes any sense. And people are slowly beginning to understand what abolish the police means. Or if not even abolish completely, like drastically take from the police budget, but more or less still abolish. And I'm glad that you mentioned the the budgeting piece because my next question talked about um, the the talking point of defunding the police and reallocating those funds to other like social services, other community programs. So the, um, I guess if and when that happens, like does the work stop there? Is there like what happens after that in terms of like this abolitionist framework? I guess in terms of um, community support programs and things like that. I guess the best way to explain that is um, if you think about like a typical white neighborhood, right? That's like very upscale, uh, uh, potentially might have a celebrity or two living in the neighborhood. When you think about the policing, and I mean like not even like police, I mean like community, like, you know, we saw a black person on the corner, everyone should be aware type of police, you know what I'm saying? In that neighborhood where, you know, it's so put together and it's so not needing of violence that police never in the neighborhood, right? Now, imagine, and I keep bringing up Chicago, obviously, because that's what I'm familiar with, but imagine that type of environment being on 63rd at Halston, you know what I'm saying? Or being in another black area in Chicago, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, as a black man, I can talk to you as a white man and like we both are not struggling or we're both not like stressed out because we both got money and like it's stability you know what i'm saying and the reason i'm saying all this is because those funds being taken from the police budget or the police being abolished means that the funds can go exactly to where like if you were to put a million dollars into a community or like a park district right that would probably be so that would probably be like five or ten like employees like payroll for like five years. You know what I'm saying? And like it's just that like it's just that possible when you remove that much money from the budget. And again, two billion dollars has been spent on policing in Chicago since the beginning of of of, of 2020. 
So that, and and we're not even done with 2020. Mm-hmm. We're, we're 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 just about to go into September. You know what I'm saying? So it's like for it to be that much money, and I mean, just like the fact that a police officer can knock a young girl's teeth out. You know what I'm saying? Or just as like what happened two days ago in Chicago, where a police officer shoots a 15 year old in the face. And they still have their jobs. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're black, you're not gonna have your job. If you skip on the register. So it's like when people ask that question, you know, of like, oh, what's gonna happen when the the police are abolished? It's like the same playing field that white people are on financially, generationally, we're just trying to get to the same level. I'll put like this. In order to become a firefighter, you have to spend, I think, 1,800 hours or such like working on becoming a firefighter, right? If you wanted to become a barber, I think it takes like 1,200 hours to like, you know, go through the course and get certified. To become a police officer, like as far as like, you know, certification, mental checks, all that, it takes about 900 hours to get that done. So it's like, just off that alone, the fact that police are not like mentally, because when you really think about the fact that police have access to military type weapons, right? Like pepper spray is actually banned in wars. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But like, yet they can use it on us in protest. You see what I'm saying? Like the fact that deep, like people that have access to this type of artillery do not go through some type of like mental thorough background check is absurd. You see what I'm saying? But in order to save someone out of a out of a building on fire, you have to go through the most upkeep of like training and all this other stuff, right? What I, the, the point I'm making is that the police have never protected anybody. Not a, not, not 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 black and brown people. And it's like I don't know. It's, it's I think it's almost to a point where like. like you know, you have to laugh to like not get upset that you keep repeating the same thing. Because when you think like like truthfully, none of what we're saying, none of what we're doing is new. You know what I mean? And it's like I think the only thing that is making all of this so important is the fact that quarantine or like being in this COVID moment right now. It's like all eyes are on, you know, what's making the most noise. You know what I'm saying? And it's like even with COVID, which is not even related to, you know, police, like that's a whole like like, like pandemic. You know what I'm saying? Like black and brown people were hit the most. You know what I mean? And it's like the same act like the, 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 the same type of white people that probably are like still okay now that the pandemic is kind of sort of lifting. Black people can't say that. And I think with moving these budgets or moving the money into different budgets, just in general for like programming, for after school programming, for trade programs, um, for more mental health clinics, um, just like more access to funds and like just different resources, plentiful resources and like just different sides of the city. Like you talking about like going to, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with Chicago, but 
it's like putting Hyde Park or putting, you know, Logan Square uh, or 87th and the Dan Ryan. You know what I'm saying? Like, the type of resources that you would get up north is everywhere in the city. You know what I'm saying? And just imagine putting that type of mentality into the whole country and, like, just in general. But, I mean, yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, again, like, this is nothing new. You know what I'm saying? And, um, but, I mean, it takes, you know, voices like ours to, you know, reiterate, unfortunately. Um, but it's like, yeah. The, the, those, that, I mean, like, like I say, even with just putting the money into those different uh, space I just mentioned, like, it would just be a whole different story once reparations are talked about, I guess. Right. And then um, you mentioned, like, people's voices getting more involved in this conversation. So how can people who maybe um, probably haven't previously thought about abolition, how can they, you know, get into this into this fight and into these conversations? To be honest, uh, I know the fastest way is really to, um, you know, people that, and I think that's the other thing is that um, in the world of organizing um, and in the world of, you know, trying to learn, what abolish the police even means. Uh, there are so many different groups and so many different, like, you know, just platforms that are, like, explaining what abolish the police mean and how that is beneficial to black people. Um, so I, I feel like for anyone that's not in Chicago, I would say, you know, really following or trying to follow, you know, uh, protests or, like, you know, different... Um, social justice things that are happening in your area. Um, so like on social media, um, like I know for Chicago, BYP 100, um, Let Us Breathe Collective, uh, Asada's Daughters, um, Good Kids, Mad City, Black Rising, like I could go on. <laughs> but um, really getting in tune with those organizations and I would say any and everything that needs to be learned about the moment that we're in as black and brown folks will be learned um, and how to contribute and use that information that will also be learned as well. Um, and again, because majority of these spaces are, you know, created and held and pushed by black women, that's why these spaces are spaces I would recommend. So. And then um, how can people get involved with BYP 100? I would say uh, follow BYP 100 on uh, Twitter. You can also follow BYP 100 on uh, Instagram uh, and Facebook. And yeah, uh, any and everything that you would want to know about our chapters from Chicago to DC to uh, New York, you will definitely find there. And then um, that's all the questions I had. Did you have any like last uh, pieces uh, or last words that you wanted to, to share? Um, I would just say for folks to, in the moments that don't make the most sense, just lean towards the art. And the art will tell you how to continue moving forward in this uh, revolutionary moment that that's it for this episode. You can find us on social media at better to speak underscore or on our website, better to speak.org. If you want to sponsor an episode and support better to speak, you can find the link to donate in the description of whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. 
Be sure to tune in to future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.